Welcome to the Thriving Authors Podcast, where we delve into all aspects of what it takes to get your dream book out of your heart, onto the page, and into the world, connecting with a wide audience of readers. I'm Dallas, and I don't just want you to be a published author. I want you to be a thriving author, confidently sharing your ideas, making an impact with your words, and owning your unique voice that deserves to be heard. I've spent the past two decades immersed in the publishing industry, building my career as the best-selling author of five books and counting. As a book coach, I have helped dozens of women birth their books and live their dreams. And here's what I know to be true. You deserve abundant creativity, a nurturing writing practice, and a supportive community that inspires and uplifts you through the ups and downs of the writing life. I want to help you write and publish your dream books that grow your audience, grow your business, and grow your legacy. On this podcast, you will find behind-the-scenes lessons from my own book writing and publishing journey interviews with successful published authors, and tips and advice you can start using today to move you forward in your writing life. You don't have to do this alone. Let's get started. Mimi Herman is a Kennedy Center teaching artist, director of the United Arts Council Arts Integration Institute, and co-director of Right Away's writing workshops in France, Italy, and New Mexico. She has taught in the Masters of Education programs at Lesley University, served as, as the 2017 North Carolina Piedmont Laureate, and has been an associate editor for Teaching Artists Journal. Since 1990, she has engaged over 25,000 students and teachers with her warm and intuitive teaching style. Mimi holds a BA from the University of North Carolina and an MFA in creative writing from Warren Wilson. She's the author of the beautiful novel, The Kudzu Queen, which we will talk about extensively in this podcast, as well as A Field Guide to Human Emotions, Logophilia, and the Art of Learning. Her writing has appeared in many journals, and she has also performed her fiction and poetry at numerous venues, including Why There Are Words in Sausalito, Memorial Auditorium in Raleigh, and Symphony Space in New York City. It was such a joy to talk with Mimi about her debut novel, writing historical fiction, the way that poetry has influenced her prose writing style, and so much more goodness. I know you'll really enjoy this conversation. Mimi, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to talk with you today. Oh, Dallas, thank you for having me. I have been looking forward to this forever. Me too. I just adored your book. I think I was, we were texting, I was telling you I have a little baby, so I don't have as much reading time as normal. And sleep is like so precious to me right now. But still, I was like giving up sleep sometimes to read your book because I just could not put it down. And it's one of those special books that um, to me, I always know that like, I'm just so immersed in a book when I find myself thinking about the characters, like they're real people, like they're friends in my life, you know, in between reading sessions, I'm like, oh, I wonder, you know, what's going on with them. And I was definitely feeling that way with your book. And so I'm just so, so thrilled to have you on the show and just to like gush about your book to you <laughs> and just to hear kind of all of the, just sort of the background about writing this book. So thank you for taking the time to come and chat with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. What wonderful things to hear. Yes, it's so special. Um, well, I would love to just hear kind of to start to start off. Um, do you want to just give us a little recap of sort of your writing journey up to this book? Like, how did you first 
fall in love with writing or uh, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? Um, could you want to just tell us a little bit about your journey as a writer? Sure. Well, like a lot of writers, I was a painfully shy kid. And I had this amazing fourth grade teacher, Miss Stevens, and she was the first person outside of my house that really saw me. Mm -hmm. And she taught poetry. Of course, years later, I realized that every fourth grade teacher teaches poetry. It's part of the curriculum. <laughs> but for me, this was magic. So she'd been teaching nuclear physics. I'd probably be a nuclear, nuclear physicist by now. <laughs> um, so she was wonderful. She got me writing poetry and I wrote poetry all through a an extremely tortured adolescence, like everyone has, um, and then started writing fiction a little in high school and then in college and studied with the amazing Doris Betts and Max Steele at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and then did um, my graduate work with Richard Russo, Robert Boswell, C.J. Reibel, and Charlie Baxter at the MFA, the Warren Wilson MFA program for writers. So I just had, I've had amazing mentors and friends, writer friends my whole life. That is such, I recognize many of those names that you shared. That's so <laughs> fabulous. Um, and I, I had a very similar, I had a fourth grade teacher named Mrs. Stevenson, very what? similar, who was also so encouraging of my writing. Um, and I, I just cannot agree more that it, how you said about being seen, I think mm -hmm. is just so powerful, especially outside of our family and having that other, those other people. Um, yeah. well, that is, that is so fabulous. And I, I can definitely see in reading, the Kudzu Queen, your background as a poet too, because one thing I just love about your writing style is just the lushness of your prose, um, your descriptions. I think I was texting you some certain descriptions that I was like, oh my gosh, this made me laugh out loud. Or like, this is just so perfect. I think um, it's rare to me to see in, in a novel, just like such precision of language. Um, mm -hmm. And I just really admire that about you. Did you want to share it all kind of about um, the parallels or the ways that you, that you see poetry informing your fiction and maybe vi vice versa, um, because I would love to just hear kind of about your process. That's a great question, Doss. So I write poetry and fiction for different reasons. Um, I write poetry to figure out how the world works. And then once I've got it on the page, hopefully it's useful to other people. I do like writing that's of use. I don't write just, you know, for my own tortured soul. I write for other people. Um, and I write fiction because um, I start hearing voices. I'm sure you do too, right? Mm -hmm. And I just start hearing these stories being told. And, um, you know, one person invents their relatives and their friends and all of that happens. But the attention to language is really important in both places. I mean, just because, you know, a, a novel is thousands of words longer than a poem doesn't mean that you can get lazy about the language. Mm -hmm. uh, I tend to overwrite like crazy. So the original perfectly beautiful draft of this book when I thought it was done was 680 pages. Wow. And even my own family would not have read that book. So <laughs> what that did was it gave me the luxury of being able to take out every word that wasn't working mm -hmm. and just leave the words that were. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And I think I'm a big believer that nothing we write is ever wasted, even mm -hmm. if it doesn't end up in the final version of our book. And I think that's really just permission giving for, for other writers to hear that. And that it's, I feel like you probably had to write that 600 something page book to get to this version. It's not like there's a shortcut that we can take past that. No, I mean, every time you write a scene, even when it doesn't go in the book, it takes you deeper into the universe and of the book and the lives of the characters. And so something that you write that you take out may inform something that you leave in. Yeah. It's really worthwhile. And so that the parts that I take out don't 
have their feelings hurt, I have what I call the pantry. And it's oh, tell me more. File. <laughs> it's a file that I take everything. I, every time I take something out of a book or even a poem, um, I put it in its own pantry. So each book or poem has its own pantry. And um, it just stays there with the idea that, you know, I might come back and take you, rescue you later and put you uh -huh. back in the story. I've only ever done that once with uh -huh. uh, in the Kudzu Queen. But, but generally, it just makes me feel better about taking it out. Um, oh. And it's just, I mean, think of what it is to create a world in a novel. It's huge. And so the more we know about that world, the better we can invite people to, to inhabit it for the time it takes to read the book. Yes. And the world that you build is so rich. I would love to hear since the Kudzu Queen is a historical novel about, um, I guess I, I can have two questions. We can tackle whichever order you want. So one question is about, you mentioned hearing voices and your characters. So I'm curious if um, kind of, if the characters sprung up first and, and then was more the research, or if you sort of knew you wanted to write a historical novel in this time frame, and the re some research came first, and then the characters emerged. So maybe, um, if I don't know if you wanted to, how you want to tackle that question, but I'm just really sure. curious about how this book emerged. I never intended to write an historical novel. That wasn't my intention. But I happened to read something in a very old newspaper about these men who traveled around the South promoting kudzu. And um, if you don't live in the South and don't know what kudzu is, it is this voracious plant. It takes over telephone poles, trees. If you leave your tractor or cow in the field, you'll come back to what I call Southern topiary the next morning. They call it the mile a minute vine or the mile a night vine. It's it's just this crazy plant. Like I like thinking of it as ivy that wants to eat you. <laughs> um, and so I came across this article about these men who traveled all over the South having kudzu festivals and kudzu beauty pageants. And I grew up driving to the beach through basically like alleyways of kudzu. I mean, you'd see kudzu as far as you could see on either side. And so I couldn't imagine why anybody would intentionally promote it. And then I found out that, yeah, it was brought into the South, into this country intentionally, and that farmers were indeed paid to plant it. And um, young men in the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, they were paid to plant it along railway embankments. So if you ride a train in the South, you'll probably see some kudzu. And I was just fascinated by it, but I couldn't write the book until I had the narrator. Um, a lot of my writing is first person, not as me, but as somebody else. And so originally this book had a male narrator of about 19 years old. Um, and he just, he didn't have legs. I mean, that's a horrible way to put it. <laughs> the book didn't have legs with him. So uh, once Maddie started talking, I mean, first of all, you've read the book, you can't shut Maddie up. She's one of my favorite characters. <laughs> And she just, you know, she invented her family and her friends, Lynette and Rose and, you know, her enemy, Glennis. And she just, she, it's less that I invented the story and more that I just ran around as fast as I could trying to keep up with her. That's amazing. Do you, um, when you, when you start writing a book, when you get your character's voice, um, do you find yourself doing a lot of rewriting at the beginning just to get the voice or does the does the plot kind of come in quickly with you her voice is so um this distinct and and real and like just so much like energy behind it that I was curious I guess about kind of how you developed that voice or how you got to know her mm, yeah that's great um actually it's kind of neither of those um when I start writing a novel I just start writing whatever scene comes into my head 
And so it could be from anywhere in the book. Uh-huh. And then I start looking at all those scenes together and kind of, okay, this one goes first. And then this one goes probably three scenes later and start shuffling them around, like sort of like, you know, having all the jigsaw puzzle pieces spread mm-hmm. out on the table and then start figuring out, oh, what is the plot? What's the story that's happening here? And this book ended up being more heavily plotted than anything I've ever written before, mm-hmm. but not from beginning to end. I didn't outline it. I didn't plan it. Um, it just kind of ended up that way. I am amazed that you didn't outline it because it, it did feel so intricately plotted. Um, so you really were kind of discovering it as you went along those pieces. Yeah, I, I write for the same reason I read, which is to find out what's going to happen next. I love that sense of discovery, which we definitely feel in the book. And there are some, I'm not going to give away any of the twists, but there are definitely some amazing, you know, twists that kept me um, on the edge of my seat. And I know what was going to happen. Um, and I love our thinking about um, this book originally with a male narr- narrator is so interesting because I think that one of the um, points that I just found just would give me such emotion, like sometimes I would just get this pit in my stomach was we have our, our other larger than life character is um, Mr. Cullowee. Mm-hmm. And I feel like having the female narrator, it seems so important within having that, that foil. Did yeah. he, did he come early on yeah. in the process too? He came pretty, yeah, actually, I think he came even with the male narrator. The male narrator wasn't in the same position that Maddie was. Um, mm-hmm. I think the other thing about Maddie is one of the biggest, deepest things about this book is that I think there's this quality that 14 and 15 year old girls often have of trying out their sexuality, kind of trying it on for size and often trying it with grown men and sort of wanting something to happen and not wanting something to happen. Um, and I've been fascinated by that quality for a really long time. I mean, since I was that age and mm-hmm. I was a little reckless myself. So I wanted to write a book um, that would explore that idea, but also had so much more to it than just yes. that. Yes. And and that brings in then my question about um about research. So it's so interesting that you never, you know, set out that you were gonna be a historical novelist. So once you you got that inspiration, you saw that old newspaper clipping about the kudzu. Um how did you go about? I mean, this book is so like you talk about world building, it's just so immersive. Um the food descriptions would always make me hungry. <laughs> that I felt like I could picture the different, um, you know, the the way that their houses were laid out, their clothes. Um, I just would love to hear about research. I think a lot of writers um, you know, that I've talked to and clients I work with, there can be such a, a balance between doing enough research, but not letting research become this sort of, um, I don't know, a black hole or like mm-hmm. procrastinating on the writing because it seems like you could just research forever. Um, I guess in the same way that you could just revise a book forever too. So do you want to just speak to your research process a little bit? I would love it. That's one of my favorite parts. So uh, first of all, I'm glad you said that about the food. I um, I went through the book um, after it was accepted for publication because I thought that my editor would tear it to shreds and I'd have to put it back together. And she had just a few really minor changes. And I thought, oh, I've got to really make sure that everything is credible. So I went through it for anachronisms. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking for words that weren't used in 1941, like the word sharp, like a sharp dresser that didn't come around till 45, you know, nobody would notice that, but me, but if that one person did, I wanted them not to, I wanted it to to not um, 
wake them from the fictional dream, as the famous writer John Gardner used to say. So I did that with with words. I also did that with foods. Um, and so I discovered that lemon bars didn't come around till the 1960s. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I thought they would get around forever. And it's probably a good thing because um, in the story, Rose originally had Maddie put some in her purse and you really never want to put lemon bars no. in your purse. It's not a good <laughs> idea. Um, but the other thing about the food is that when I went through and started looking for all these things, I was like, okay, I must have been really hungry when I wrote this book because there's so much food in it. So the companion piece is going to be a cookbook, I think. <laughs> yes. Um, so I just had a lot of fun with it. But the thing about me and research is that yeah, it's a black hole. Once you start doing it, you're going to be in it for days. But I don't do research until I come across something that I don't know. Mm. So I'll write and write and write and write. And then I'll go, hmm, how high would corn be a week after planting or three weeks mm -hmm. after planting? And so then I'll look it up. And I had all of these charts of corn and tobacco and cotton and, you know, when you plant them and what their their enemies are and how you grow them. Um, I did lots of research on clothing because there's there's different um, levels of dress. I mean, Glynis always had to be very sharply dressed, Yeah. but she didn't have a lot of money. So none of them did. So there's clothing, there's food, there's language. Um, and then there's things that are growing. I, I grew up in suburban Raleigh, North Carolina. I didn't grow up in the country. Um, and the closest I've gotten to farming is having a garden in my backyard. So I had to really research what it meant to be a farmer. Well, and I would have read this thinking that you'd grown up on a farm because it it felt so um just so immersive and realistic to me. I felt like I was living out in the country when I was reading this and um yeah, I just love those details. I think it really helps immerse the reader in that fictional dream um because I just I just trusted you so completely. Like everything just felt as part of this world. So I just admire that so much. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about um, book groups, book clubs? So I know that your book, I as soon as I read it, I think I told you I'm trying to start a little book club in my area with other moms who don't have much time to read, but still <laughs> want to read and get, and I was like, this is going to be our first book we read. Um, I just think it's such a perfect book club read, but did you want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, visiting book clubs and kind of your, I know you've already been visiting a lot of book clubs um, for this book. So did you want to share about that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I had hoped that this would take off as a book club book. Um, and it has beyond my wildest dreams. I keep hearing from people who are saying my book club is reading this. My book club read this one book club recently read it and they all dressed up in white and they all wore tiaras and they had this amazing meal. Uh, and I love, talking with book clubs. So I am happy to talk with book clubs near me in person or far from me by Zoom. I would love to chat with people and give a little reading and do a Q&A if anybody's interested. The funny thing about this book is I feel like I've learned more about it since I published it than I did when I was writing it. Oh, tell me more. Oh my gosh, the questions people ask make me really, really think about how things work. You know, people ask, why was Maddie the narrator? Why not Lynette? Um, and, you know, somewhere I know the answer, but it's not something that I ever thought about. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, why is um, Carl in the book? Is he necessary? Mm -hmm. So when people ask questions or when people point out things that they notice, like one person noticed something that I loved, which is that um, characters that you don't like in the beginning become more likable in the book, mm -hmm. like Mrs. Sampson, who's horrific at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And some of it's that 
um, maybe you're seeing other sides of them, but some of it is that Maddie's maturing and she's able to see people less simplistically um, and in a more rounded fashion. And since she's your narrator, you see things the way she sees things. Yes, that is such a good point. I think that's, I think that's so interesting. And did you feel as you were writing her, so you mentioned writing scenes, not necessarily from beginning mm -hmm. to end. Mm -hmm. um, did you feel like that was, that that happened naturally as you got to know her more as, as an author, or I guess, did you want to talk a little bit about the way that you piece, that you write those different pieces while still having a narrative that feels cohesive? Mm -hmm. I think once I knew sort of what the story was and how it was going to end up, you know, with the big kudzu pageant, um, that gave me the narrative arc. It's it, a lot of it is intuitive going along, mm -hmm. and a lot of it is through revision, you know, mm -hmm. deepening things through revision, and and just sort of following Maddie. You know, the, the scenes, the pivotal scenes were mostly written after the book had taken shape. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it took shape through attrition. Um, one of my favorite things about this book is that in addition to the editor at my press, um, my partner, John Ewell, is an amazing editor. And he read the book twice through. And the first time he gave me lots of really great, fierce edits. And the second time he read it, he came into my study and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I have to tell you something and you're not going to like it. Oh, no. My right? stomach drops hearing that. I know, right? <laughs> And he said, you know, the ending of your book, that 40 pages that you spent so long working on and honing, I mean, you know, just down to the syllable, he said, it's got to go. Wow. And so I walked away and I stewed for about 20 seconds. And then I came back and I said, you're right. He said, you let all the air out of the tires. It's the, the book climaxes before that. Mm. And so sometimes what you take out is as important as what you leave in or what you put in. That is so interesting to hear because I can't even imagine, like the ending feels so pitch perfect to me where it is, that it's hard to even imagine like what those 40 pages would have been as much as I would have loved to stay in the world even longer. <laughs> and one of those books you want to, to just keep going. Um, well, and I think it's so, um, it just says so much about you as a writer to be willing to hear that too, right? Sometimes that's, the hardest thing is to um, recognize like that truth about the book and, and make that hard decision to, to make those cuts. Yeah. I, I love, I don't know exactly the moment that it happened, but I love having gotten to the point where it's about the book, not my feelings. Mm, tell me more yeah. about that. Well, you know, when you're a young writer and somebody says something, it's like, you know, it's like they're taking a piece of you out or they're they're telling you that they don't like the way you look. You know, it's very personal. And for me, it's not personal. It's it's as if the book exists in some platonic ideal or, you know, some sculpture inside of a, you know, piece of marble, the Carrera marble for Michelangelo, and that my job is to find the book. Mm. And if something's in the way of the book or if there's, you know, too much of something or too little of something, then then it has to go or it has to change. Yes. That is such an important distinction. I think you're so right that it's I feel similar where early on, you know, and I think that's why we can take criticism so personally yeah. sometimes, um, where we feel like somehow, yeah, it's about us or there we're not enough in some ways. Um, but I love that idea of separating 
thinking of the book as like this separate entity that you're just trying to really get at the truth of that or the essence. One of my favorite professors um, in my undergrad, Amy Bender, she used to talk about how when we first get an idea, it's like this kind of amorphous, perfect, shiny idea. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then when we're trying to set that into words, like there's always going to be a gap between mm -hmm. that initial beautiful, shiny idea and our actual book that we have at the end, but that as writers and as our career unfolds and the more books we write, we're just like trying to make that gap smaller and smaller and smaller. And I've always loved that analogy of kind of, because I think sometimes when we start to write, we get that perfect idea and we're like, well, it's not the same, you know, on the page. And I think that can stop so many writers, but recognizing that we're never going to you know, part of the challenge of getting that idea down into words is that you have to like make it concrete in some way. I think you're absolutely right. That's such a great way to look at it. Very wise on Amy's part. I love that. Um, yeah, there's nothing more disheartening than writing in you know, the first time you start writing something after you've had that brilliant idea, this perfect thing, and then yeah. you look at it on the page. You know, I, I'm working on two new books actually at the moment. And um, one of them is brand new and I've got a hundred pages of it that I'm probably going to throw away, yeah. you know, that are just trying to write my way toward the book. Mm -hmm. um, but it's frustrating to look at that and go, it's such a cool idea. I can feel it. I can see it. And it is not on the page yet. Yeah. And just having that patience and like that faith that mm -hmm. you're going to get there um, through the process. Yeah. Do you have any other, um, you've already shared so much great advice for other writers, but there's a writer listening who maybe they are feeling kind of discouraged about their project, or maybe they're feeling hesitant about jumping in, or they read a book like yours. I think some, one reason I love having this podcast is I think it kind of peels back the process to, you know, these books that we love that sometimes we read them and we're like, oh my gosh, I could never write something like that. You know, do you have any advice for, for other writers who might be listening? I do. I have two completely different kinds of advice for, for people at different phases. So the first bit of advice is if you're not writing, you know, if you feel blocked or maybe you always wanted to be a writer at one point when you were younger and you're trying to find your way back to it. So my best advice for that is to write 15 minutes every day. Um, whatever comes into your head it doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be smart. It doesn't have to connect with what you wrote yesterday or what you're going to write tomorrow. Just 15 minutes. And if you miss a day, don't punish, punish yourself by writing 30 minutes the next day, unless you're excited and you want to keep writing. Just start with 15 minutes because you can always find 15 minutes, no matter how busy you are. So that's my first bit of advice. And, um, I wrote my first novel that way. It's definitely doable. So then once you're into it and you're actually writing and you're feeling good about it, if you want to make a scene or a character or a setting come to life, use at least three of your five senses in describing it. Mm. It's sort of like, think of a three-legged stool. It makes it fully dimensional in a way that just describing what we see or even what we hear doesn't. Yes. And that is so, if anyone wants to really study that, your book is such a great <laughs> um, you know, example of that. I think that's such a great kind of practical advice. And that's also so helpful to think about when when revising, you know, looking at the different scenes and seeing what senses are brought in. Maybe that's why the food was so immersive in your novel is it brings in those sense, you know, I feel like I could taste the food or I could smell it as I'm reading. And that just brings the scene so much more to life. And I could not agree with you more about the 15 minutes a day. I'm in a season right now um, where that's, that's usually, you know, my minute, that's my goal for every day. But I think it does so much with, with keeping you in, 
in the world and like keeping that momentum. And I find myself thinking about my writing throughout the day, even if I'm not at the keyboard for longer than 15 minutes, it still feels like things are, things are kind of generating. So I love that advice. Thanks. Well, I could just keep talking with you on and on. Um, I know listeners will want to um, get more from you and to get your book and to connect with you. So what are the best ways for them to reach you? Um, probably the best way is through my website, www.mimiherman.com. Perfect. And I know you're on social media as well. And Kudzu Queen is available wherever books are yep, sold. Yeah, wherever books are sold. Um, and I'm on Facebook and Instagram mostly. So I'd love to hear from people there. Um, if you're uh, reading the book or if your book club's reading the book, um, let me know. I'd love to chat with you. Yes. I, I think that is such, that's such a special opportunity. It's a perfect summer read. We're getting into summer season. I think this, this book is fantastic. So thank you so, so much for your time. And thank you for your beautiful book. I just loved it. Oh, Dallas, thank you. This has been such a treat. Thanks for spending time with me today. Please hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. And I would love for you to join me in my free Facebook group. It's called Book Breakthrough Community, and it's full of other heart-centered writers sharing resources and supporting each other. We discuss the podcast episodes. I regularly go live with free challenges, and you may even meet your new writing partner to swap pages with. Join us on Facebook at Book Breakthrough Community. And you can always reach out to me personally at Dallas Woodburn Author on Facebook and Instagram. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast and your ideas for new episodes. Until next time, happy writing.